0: You're listening to Indie Live Radio and we're about to begin this week's Yes Group Spotlight programme. And this week it features a Scottish Currency Group. They organised a conference at the end of November and this talk comes from a debate called Designing the Scottish Reserve Bank. Cory Wilson is in the chair and it features a panel discussion with Professor Richard Murphy of taxresearch.org, Dr Craig DL from Commonweal. Dr. Tim Rideout from the Scottish Cancer Group and Karen von Sweden from Modern Money Scotland and we hope you enjoy it. We just want to say before we start that the Indie Live Radio team really appreciate the Scottish Cancer Group for letting us share their content. Here it is.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Scottish Currency Group event. Um, I think we're in for an exciting and interesting discussion over the next couple of hours, so I'm glad you've managed to join us. And the first speaker
0: is Dr Craig Dale of Commonweal.
2: Yes, I've been asked to come on to talk about um, just what a central bank is, what it does and what it would take Scotland to set one up. Now, I wrote a paper on this um, three years ago this month actually, November 2017. Um, You can find that on the Commonweal website, commonweal.scot, go into our policy library and look for the paper Scotland's National Bank and I go through all all the issues here. Now I'm going to try and summarize this paper in five minutes which of course is impossible so I really encourage people who are interested in this topic to to go to that paper and and really delve into the the details of it. Um, So what does a central bank do? We're used to the the big thing that central banks do that is monitoring the money supply of a country and setting things like interest rates inflation targets um perhaps even balance of payment uh, targets that this this was a policy that used to be uh, quite popular in the UK monitoring how many how much what is the value of the goods uh, being exported from the country versus what is being imported, and trying to to work out if that balance is the, the the right thing. In in an, in an era of globalization, we don't really track that much anymore. Maybe we should. That's something for uh, policy people to discuss. Um, but there's other things that central bank does. Uh, a big one is known as financial clearing. This is where the central bank sits as a, a trusted neutral intermediary between the retail banks as they are trading money between each other and other financial institutions are trading money with each other. And that can be anything from you're balancing the... the the, the reserves held by these retail banks if one of them uh, needs needs help from the others. But it could, goes all the way down to even when you, as for example, a Bank of Scotland customer goes to Barclays Bank to take money out of their ATM, that transfer of money from your account has to go through two banks. And often they do this through some sort of cleaning institute. Uh, central banks can often um, have a role in maintaining and enforcing financial regulations some central banks around the world do this some countries the UK notably uh, outsource this to a separate financial regulation institute but you can think of these things these two things as as linked. Um, we do think about central banks and folk who are around in the 2014 campaign Um, and will know the the, the term lender of last resort. This is something else that central banks can do. Ultimately, as the the institute that defines the money supply in a country, they are the ones who can bail out any institution if no one else can. But if you have a regulatory industry that that is tight enough to prevent these these institutions getting into trouble in the first place, then the need for that lender of last resort, while it's important to have, Ideally, you should never get into that trouble in the first place. A good example of this, I highlight in the paper, is um, during the 2008 financial crisis, when banks were collapsing all over the world. One country that notably didn't suffer a financial crisis as part of the the, the crash itself was Jamaica. They had learned from a previous financial crash in the 1990s uh, that affected their housing and the, the housing sector. And they tightened up their financial regulations. And as a result, in 2008, their banks weathered that storm pretty well. Of course, they then got into trouble later on because Jamaica is a country that is quite heavily dependent on tourists, on the tourism tourism sector. And due to the 2008 financial crisis, nobody could afford to go to Jamaica on holiday. So they suffered in a different way. But the financial regulations worked and they didn't need to bail out their banks to the same degree that the UK did. Um, so what would it co- cost Scotland to set up a central bank should we choose to do one? Now, I look in this, look at this in the paper as well. It turns out that central banks really scale as a factor of the size of your country. There's a really good, strong correlation between the size and the, the expense of your central bank and the size of your economy. And that kind of makes sense as there's, a, there's a people sitting at the top of that economy, monitoring and regulating and, and maintaining it. Um, so a country the size of Scotland, you'd be looking at somewhere between 150 million, 200 million pounds to set up, probably roughly the same again to, to maintain it every year. But here's the thing, because of all those things that the central banks do, they're profit-making enterprises. The, the Bank of England makes a profit for the UK and that profit, because the Bank of England is a nationally owned institute, goes straight into the UK treasury. How many people would it employ? Depends how much you want to do. Uh, with your central bank, whether you want a light touch central bank or a very invasive central bank, but it'd be somewhere between 300 and 1,000 very well paid, very skilled jobs. There's a lot of opportunities there, there's plenty more to discuss about what we want to do with the central bank, how we want to run it, how much democracy we want in it, all on paper. Hopefully I'll chat to you about it in the Q&A. Thank you.
0: And the next speaker is Dr Tim Rideout
3: uh so what i'm just going to do is just briefly outline the design principles that we're suggesting for the scottish reserve bank and the, the scottish reserve bank is uh what i think we should call the central bank for scotland it's uh, picks up on things like the reserve bank of new zealand federal reserve of the united states uh, reserve bank of south africa we obviously can't have reserve bank of scotland somebody else has rbs uh so anyway so scottish reserve bank and uh I suggest that to be based in Edinburgh because that's where a lot of the financial community is. Uh, and uh, it would be owned 100% by the Scottish Treasury. Uh, it doesn't need any share capital or no external investors. Uh, it's the source of capital, so we don't need to put money in to start it up, other than the initial cost of premises and things like that. Uh, it would have presidents and directors, which would be appointed by the Scottish Parliament, and they should always be answerable to the Scottish Parliament. Uh, it's a, uh, It's a... Mm-hmm. Right-wing sort of myths that uh, central banks should be independent. They shouldn't. Uh, That was the reason why the Bank of England was nationalised in 1946, was precisely to make it accountable uh, to the people and Parliament. Uh, Parliament will uh, direct the central bank to to make the preparations for and introduce the Scottish currency, and uh, it will put it in charge of things like uh, the monetary uh, policy that should be uh, pursued in Scotland. Uh, It will run the uh, bank accounts for the Ministry of Finance and uh, it will provide loan and overdraft facilities as required uh, to the state. Uh, So, for example, at the moment, under the COVID facility, the Bank of England has lent the British government £300 billion and rising, so that, uh, as a result, the cost of the COVID pandemic has been, in terms of what the public have to pay, has so far been exactly zero, Uh, as uh, Richard Murphy can elaborate on that uh, at length. Uh, uh, the bank will also hold and manage the foreign reserves of Scotland on behalf of the Ministry of Finance, and uh, it will issue banking licenses to people, to companies which wish to provide banking services in Scotland. So, any of the existing banks, uh, for example, uh, let's say Nationwide Building Society, uh, if they wish to continue operating in Scotland, they have to set up Nationwide Scotland PLC and apply for a banking license uh, from the Scottish Reserve Bank. Uh, the bank will also be uh, holding the reserve accounts of the commercial banks, and it will provide the uh, uh, interbank payment system that is necessary for them. Uh, we can. There's no reason why we shouldn't allow banks operating in Scotland to carry on issuing their own banknote designs if they wish to. I think it's a nice tradition. I don't see any problem with that. Uh, they do have to deposit 100% bond against any notes that are issued. So at the moment, there's four and a half billion on deposit in the Bank of England, and that will move. Uh, to Scotland uh, when we become independent. So it goes into the reserves of the uh, central bank. Uh, We will also be uh, directing the central bank to establish a sovereign wealth fund for Scotland. And uh, as you'll see if you attend one of my talks, uh, the Scottish Reserve Bank will end up with very large sterling reserves because it is going to buy our sterling. uh, So when we hand in £500 and get £500 Scots, that £500 we hand in becomes the property of the central bank, so it could end up with 40 or £50 billion, uh, within a few weeks of the new currency uh, coming into place. It doesn't need that, so uh, we can put quite a large amount of that into a sovereign wealth fund. So that's a very brief summary. We will display the motion before you get to uh, uh, vote on it, uh, but I think we can open things up to uh, some questions.
1: Perfect. Thank you. Thanks for that, Tim. Um, I would like to invite the rest of the panellists back on. Okay. So one of the first questions that we have is what rules need to be incorporated into Scottish banking regulation and why are they important? Can
4: we go to you, Richard, please? Wow, what a big question. Um wasn't what I was planning to open with. I mean, can I just make A general comment, though, which is actually quite important at this moment, and that is that we're discussing something which does presume that Scotland is going to have its own currency. A reserve bank can't really operate in another currency. I know that there are things called central banks across Europe, which do use the euro. They don't have the range of powers that I think is necessary to deliver the control of an economy that Scotland is going to need, particularly as a new country. And the power it most particularly needs is the ability to control its interest rate. Um, It is said that Scotland is going to have all sorts of financial problems if it becomes independent, which I suspect those who are watching this will realise that I don't agree with. But I do think that Scotland has to have the means to actually enforce, in a sense, its will upon the Scottish economy. And that is what governments around the world do. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, governments exist to run economies fundamentally, to deliver well-being for the people of the countries for whom they're responsible. And having your own currency is a pretty fundamental part of that. With regard to the central reserve bank that is going to be required, without having your own currency, you can't control the interest rate, which is a fundamental job of a reserve bank without having your own currency you can't run those reserve bank accounts on behalf of banks because they'd have to be held with the bank of england if they're going to be held with anybody and so you wouldn't have the means to actually regulate scottish banking and without your own currency you can't do quantitative easing which is the long-term mechanism now used to control interest rates within an economy and there is a real value to low interest rates as we've all seen and as anybody with a mortgage will know in fact i believe that unless scotland has the ability to control Scottish interest rates after the independence... Um, has arisen then having a central reserve bank is no point but also Scotland is left completely exposed to risk with regard to interest rate policy set for another country so the fundamental rule to make a central reserve bank operate is have your own currency and then set rules for how you want interest rates to work and be willing to back those up by creating your own central reserve bank accounts for your own countries and to have your own ability to do QE. Those are the fundamental rules that I think have to be complied with.
1: Okay, thank you. Karen, do you want to come in?
5: Yeah, um, I am um, an executive director, or one of the executive directors of Modern Money Scotland. So really the idea behind Modern Money Scotland is to debunk a lot of the myths around um, economics and how people think about how a national economy works and to really just say that, you know, when when we have an uh, independent Scotland, we have to have our own currency. We are not really fundamentally independent unless we have our own currency. So, um, you know, the, the, the myths of unemployment, the myth of austerity, um, we're aiming to bust them all at Modern Money Scotland. So that's really the function of what we are trying to do there. Um, so obviously having a central bank, And having our own currency, that's really central to that thinking.
1: Okay, thanks, Craig.
5: Craig,
2: Um, on on that question about what financial regulations should we have, there's there's perhaps a flip side of that: of what ones should we not have? Um, Right now, the the SNP policy, as guided by the Growth Commission, is that, that Scotland would effectively copy and paste the UK's financial regulations into an independent Scotland and then for an indefinite period after that, continue to copy the UK's financial regulations as the UK changes them. I have a fundamental disagreement with that Whatever financial regulations that we we decide to come up with, whether we, you know, do democratically decide to go for a a, a light touch UK style or a more interventionist, more um, more regulated financial sector, you can guess which side of the, the the debate I I would rather be on. But whatever choice we want to do with that, I don't think we should be copy pasting the regulations from the rest of the UK, especially after we're independent.
0: Tim
3: Rideout? I would I would absolutely agree with that. What I think the fundamental design principle of the financial regulations we should have is that the financial services industry should work for the people rather than the the UK system we have at the moment, where the people work for the financial services industry. So one way of doing that is to you know instead of saying what, for example, a bank is allowed is not allowed to do, which is the UK system, you know, change it round and say we're going to have a list of what banks are allowed to do so you know they can provide current accounts personal loans business loans credit cards foreign exchange facilities things like that uh, if they bank then says we've got this new invention of a credit derivative swap well it's not on the list of what they're allowed to do so they can't do it until they prove that it's safe and you know worthwhile whereas the uk system they can come up with anything new and it's automatically allowed until westminster gets around to banning it because it turns out to be dangerous just to pick up and um, a point karen made there
1: about um making it easy for people to understand. I think that is one of the most difficult things in terms of banking, money, economics. For the majority of people, unless something is is actually affecting them directly,
5: I think they find it really difficult to understand. Yeah, I I mean, I'm hoping that I'm trying, that I'm aiming to do that to people because I'm not an economist. um, And really, um, it is important that people understand, first and foremost, that um, the taxation myth that, uh, you know, post, post not having the gold standard anymore, when we now have a free floating fiat currency, um, you know, the pound note is just a note and um, there's, no, there's no gold behind it. So I think pe- there's a lot of people in the population still have an idea that money has an inherent value. And we have to start from that point, I think, first and foremost, and say, no, it doesn't. And, you know, your government creates the money. It's the monopoly issuer of the money, and it creates the money first, and then it taxes second. And when people get their heads around that concept, I think that that then sets the wheels in motion to understanding that your money is your political tool that your uh, politicians direct to make things happen. And if we don't have that tool... We can't increase our health service. We can't do all the things that really Scotland, I know that the Scottish people want to happen, Um, you know, actually probably whether they vote no or yes. We have to have that tool in place.
0: And now Richard Murphy.
4: Brief one. I mean, I I am actually now trying to put out videos virtually every day on my blog, the Tax Research UK, I admit, blog. But, you know, you never know. It might change one day. Um, But Tax Research blog, where I'm talking about some of these issues, and I hope in fairly plain English terms. I'm also producing now a series of Twitter threads for those who find that easier, to try and explain concepts like quantitative easing, which are desperately difficult when you first come across them, in what again I hope is sort of, well literally, because Twitter requires it, bite-sized chunks, to try to make it understandable and I think that's critical, what I'd love to produce is actually a comic book version of all of this in some way, or an animated video of it, which actually really does go down to basics, and yet is technically right, because I think it's critical that people understand these issues, and they're not that hard once you get over the fact that you know, economists and accountants and others try to talk mumbo-jumbo about them, but actually they're not that difficult at the end of the day.
5: I think it's important to mention as well that, you know, there's a lot of economists who are are heterodox, you know, who are who would say that, you know, the orthodoxy have really tried very hard to make it complicated, yes. and there's a reason for that, um, and it's to help really, it's really to help the 1%. And, that yes, yeah, so it's not as complicated as people think, actually, And um, often one of the tools that the orthodoxy uses the overuse of mathematics, which are inappropriate a lot of the time as well. So a lot of it can be understood in plain English. We're saying here, you know, the starting point um, of a Scottish Reserve Bank, um, would we recreate the Bank
1: of England or is there there another model? Um, The Bank of England has four goals, and I'm sure you guys already know all this, um, to secure bank notes, to stable prices, safe and sound banks, and a resilient financial system. So with that in mind, does the Scottish Reserve Bank want to target inflation or should we move towards targeting unemployment and inflation? I'll
5: give that
2: to Craig first. Yeah, this is this in in my paper. I talk about all the objectives of a central bank, and and yes, you you can put different weights on the on the objectives depending on the the politics of the day. So I, I'd advocate give, it, give you know having all of these things on the table and then looking at that and you know. What does the country need at any given time? And folk on different sides of the economic spectrum from different schools, especially some of the heterodox schools that Karen mentioned will have different ideas about which ones they want to put up at the top. Of that list, as I as I mentioned, one thing we don't really look at anymore is balance of payments, which used to be the be all and end all. The the country must have a balance, a, a, a flat trade balance. That used to be the mantra in the UK, and now it's not cared about whatsoever. Maybe that could come back in some some way. Maybe, um, but it gives an example of how things can change.
3: Okay, thanks, Tim. Well, I think uh, uh, one of the key objectives of the central bank should be to maintain full employment um, in the UK at the moment. The Bank of England is only really worried about inflation and inflation is some, is a concern, mostly of people who have lots of money and people who are owed money. You know, if you if you lend money, then inflation means you get back less than you lent. So, you know, the, the fact that the UK is only interested in inflation suggests that they're only really interested in protecting the wealth of the, you know, the very, very wealthy and their financial institutions. Uh, in the U.S., it's not very radical. You know, the U.S. Federal Reserve it has a target of maintaining full employment in America, and I think uh, Scotland should—you know—that should be our number one objective, and the rest should be a bit secondary.
4: And now, Richard Murphy. Very briefly, I mean, one of the problems of having a central bank with objectives is that actually that splits economic responsibility between the treasury or a finance ministry or whatever we might have in Scotland in the future and a central bank and that's a problem because turf wars break out. Traditionally we've had governments as in treasuries running tax policy, what's called fiscal policy in economic terms, but let's call it tax and spending policy and then we have central banks running interest rate policy and the two don't necessarily coincide we don't really have many effective mechanisms for what is called monetary policy now because those run around interest rates and interest rates are going to be near enough zero for the first 10-15 years of an independent Scotland I suspect so let's ignore that we have to integrate the central bank into the thinking of the treasury they cannot be considered separate that's the critical thing to think about here and if the central if the government wants full employment and that should be its aim then it should go for it and full employment is entirely possible with low uh, low inflation so long as as you get your pay policy right as well so those are the combined things for me and pay policy means decent wages for decent jobs.
5: Yeah um, I would also reiterate what Richard said earlier uh, in that what is your government for you know it's really for running your country um, and I would say you know that the laissez-faire um, governance that we've had for the past 40 years is, is not suitable for purpose you know, you elect people in to run your country well. And when you have unemployment, there are massive toxic effects for your society after that. And, you know, if your politicians are um, not ensuring that there's no unemployment, you know, get them out, vote them out. You need to have politicians that are ensuring that we have full employment. And in a country that has a free floating fiat currency, there is no excuse for unemployment. And there is no excuse for all the toxic effects that it brings to our society.
1: Now, we're going to uh, one of the questions in the, the chat, guys. So Kath is asking you, how do we introduce the currency issue into the discussion without making it look like an attack on the SNP? Mm-hmm. A lot of indie supporters won't listen until the SNP say it. Um, Tim?
3: Well, I mean, this is something I've been working on since I proposed Amendment D at the April 2019 conference now I thought that had set the policy very clearly I think the delegates were very emphatic uh, that uh, you know, they wanted us to have our own currency as soon as possible after Independence Day and then suddenly the next day we have you know spokespeople for the SNP popping up on the BBC saying it made no difference and we're just going to go on with us you know using sterling for 10 or 15 years so you know all it really needs is for the leadership to, to Actually, take notice of the what is actually the policy, uh, and just accept that that's the policy. And I don't know, I don't really understand what the issue is. I haven't, you know, I've been doing meetings all over Scotland for the last uh, nearly two years, and uh, I haven't met anyone uh, apart from uh, one or two MPs who, um, you know, don't agree that that is the sensible policy. So, you know, we're, we're not trying to attack the you know, the SNP or anything at all because I think you'll find that there's you know, 100,000 members who all support the view that we should have our own currency. So, you know, I don't really know what the blockage is in that um, if, if we if we just accept that and then next time Nicola Sturgeon is facing Andrew Neil uh, on a TV interview, uh, she won't get tied in knots because the policy doesn't make sense. You know, she'll just be able to say, you know, when somebody says, what's your policy? We're going to have our own currency like every other country. And uh, end of discussion. That's, you know, Uh, So, you know, tie yourself in knots over some mythical tests and uh, things like that. It's just silly.
4: And now Richard Murphy. I'm not a party politician. I'm not a member of the SNP. I'm not a member of any political party. So I make the point that my concern is that I can't imagine a successful, viable Scotland without its own currency. And I can imagine a successful, viable Scotland with its own currency. And I believe it's a place where, you know, frankly, I might want to live. So... The difference is absolutely fundamental it is literally about being independent you can't be independent if you don't stake your claim as a country to tax in your own right and have your own currency and tax and money are the flip side of each other spending puts money into the economy and tax brings it back that's what actually happens in reality that's how money is created by government spending, and it's claimed back to prevent inflation by taxation. So these things are just not independent in a country. And if Scotland wants to really run its own economy, and God knows Scotland's capable of doing that. Let's not believe any of the stories to the contrary. If Scotland wants to do that, it has to have its own currency. It's just like going out to become a carpenter and not having a saw. You know, it's as basic as that.
5: Yeah, that's a really great analogy from Richard. It is. It's just like you know, you, you, your currency is your tool that enacts policy. You know, that's very. You know, if we, you, if we have to ask for the tool from another country, but that's we're, but but we're in the situation we're in now. So yeah, but how how your question is how are you not attacking the SNP? Well, the SNP is a democracy. It's a big party. And it's, it's a broad party. We all know that there are people on the right and the left and everything in between. So, you know, if some people think that Andrew Wilson's idea or the Growth Commission's a good idea, then, yeah, crack on with that. But I don't. And lots of other people in the party don't. And uh, we, we've we just got to keep arguing our case, which I think is the logical one. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we've just got to keep convincing more and more people. So I'm busy with... Trying to do work on modern money, Scotland, and and then going around talking to people as much as possible to try and simplify this as much as possible because I think, unfortunately, people are afraid of economics and they don't need to be. Let's, it's not, it's not, it's not scary. It's really not. And there, there's again, there's been the smoke and mirrors to try and make it uh, scary, and it's not. So uh, I hope that I can demystify that a little bit. Okay, thanks, Craig. Do you have anything to Dad?
2: Uh, only to. Repeat one of my favourite phrases that I've used a lot in politics, especially from a, a lobbying uh, perspective, is that in politics everything is impossible until it becomes <laughs> inevitable. I've uh, I have been through several campaigns now that were we were told at the start just would not happen, things like Scotland banning fracking or setting up a national investment bank. But through persistent campaigning, through especially through a grassroots campaign, getting party members uh, talking to their respective parties, and and really pu- pushing their ideas. Uh, it's not just me shouting, it's a crowd shouting and that's how you win.
1: How do we persuade the SNP to drop Andrew Wilson's woeful ideas
4: and mid a currency soonest? Um, Richard? I wish I knew. I mean, I I just don't understand where Andrew Wilson is coming from. I'm really completely baffled by why somebody would actually want to promote the idea that Scotland is going to become independent and then try to build up reserves by trading in sterling over a long period of time when, as Tim points out, reserves are readily available by simply swapping from sterling into Scottish currency, whatever it's called. But it's composing, choosing to impose austerity on Scotland. I mean, there is no other way to do this. If you are literally understanding economics, and I think I do, and you want to create reserves the way that Andrew Wilson does, then the only way to do it is to run a government surplus. And to run a government surplus, you have to push everyone else into deficit. That means every single household would have to borrow to create a surplus within the government for a start. Now, that's so basically wrong to force every household to borrow to let the government have a surplus. That it's just almost criminal to think that that's the right way to go. And it would literally crush the spirit of Scotland. And damn it, what's running the whole independence campaign is the spirit of Scotland, as far as I can see. And I watch, you know, from a little bit from afar, but read and am in touch with lots of people. So look, I just don't understand Andrew Wilson's approach. I don't understand why it's attractive. The only thing it can and must do is appeal to a small number of businesses at present. And it might appeal to a small part of the electorate at present, but the time when that was of worry, when we had to worry about a margin in Scotland, about you know, those small numbers of people to tip it over the 50%, I genuinely believe that's gone. So how do you defeat Andrew Wilson? You push the margin in favour of independence, not up from 52 to 54, but actually to 58 to 60. And at that point, you haven't got to worry about those who are obsessed about this issue about the currency anymore because it's so glaringly obvious that Scotland wants to be its own country in its own right anyway, and we cannot have to win it on the basis of some people who are petrified that their pension might be paid in Scottish pounds instead of sterling. That's the way to win this, win the big argument and the small one will follow on. It is a smaller one relatively after all.
3: Tim Rideout? Well, I, I, after the April 2019 conference, it was Andrew Wilson who was on the BBC the next morning. Then I thought the only way to win this is exactly what Craig was saying, and that's to you know forget about the leadership for the time being and uh, concentrate on the grassroots, the yes, the yes movement, all the SNP branches and so forth. And that's why uh, I've I've spent you know the nearly two years uh, you know, holding I think nearly 35 meetings now. Uh, and just explaining that uh, currency is easy. You know, every country has managed to do it. You'll have seen the
1: poll there that's um, asking whether the Growth Commission is a good idea, and 88%
5: have said no. <laughs> so I think that answers the question. Yeah, I mean, it's just not logical. And uh, I think, you know, just for me, the reason I started to learn about economics was to convince no voters. Um, because they're quite analytical, a lot of them. They really want to know how it's going to work. How will it actually work? And the Growth Commission doesn't offer anything in that respect. So I think think it was a political decision. I think it comes across as maybe this is simpler to sell. People feel comfortable using this currency. Um, It's simpler to sell to the no voters. I would disagree with that. I think the no voters are discerning. And I think they want to know the truth, and that you, you, we cannot sell them this POP. It's it is a POP.
0: And now Richard Murphy,
3: I think that I mean we can broaden things out a little bit in that uh, and obviously there are lots of issues around the economics of independence. Karen's raised one of pensions, and I think you know, it might just be worth mentioning. I think what I well what I think would happen with the UK state pension, for example. So you know, as things, things stand, as the continuing state the UK would be liable to pay the state pension to, to everyone the same way as they pay it to people in Spain or you know even a, a you know a Polish plumber who comes to work in the UK for 10 years and goes back to Poland they're still entitled to ten years worth of a UK state pension but it's not a funded scheme so there is no pension fund behind it so uh, and it comes out of current taxation so I think what would happen in the negotiations over independence is that there'll be a, a small payment of Uh, a couple of billion out of the UK state pension fund, which usually has a few billion in it. uh, And Scotland would agree to take over the state pension and would then pay it in Scottish pounds uh, going forward. And it's funded then from the national insurance and the income tax that we are paying uh, anyway. Uh, So uh, I think that's probably what will happen to the state pension. Uh, Anyone who has a private pension or from a company based in England, that will be paid in sterling. And it's the private banks that are agents of the central bank. So is it right
1: that the central bank regulates the private banks? This should continue? Or should we? what should the structure look like?
0: Craig Dale?
2: As I said, uh, some countries have that role of financial regulation built into and embedded within their central bank. Uh, others uh, have a separate uh, financial regulatory Uh, institute that does that for them. In either case, the result is the same. Yes, you know, we do need uh, uh, strong regulation of of the banks. We've we've seen plenty of times what happens when we don't. It's as simple as that.
4: I agree with Craig entirely. This is the job of the central bank and it has to be done extremely well. And that also requires that there be a commitment to paying good regulators. One of the failures of the UK and one of the reasons why we cannot adopt the UK mentality on these issues is that regulation is being treated as a secondary issue of inconsequence and has not attracted the best calibre of candidates. We have to make sure that Scotland does not have that attitude, not just on banking, but on other issues as well, like tax in my case, but all right across the board. Scotland needs a great civil service to run it. It's a great country. What, what Tim
1: picked up on there um, is about pensions, and I think that is something that probably scares a lot of the population, um, and it's used as a scaremonger to, to keep us all in our box, basically. Um, how can we ensure that going forward, um, you know, our pensions are protected, and, and what would you guys suggest an independent Scotland um, should create for a pension? Create- oh, I've-
2: Just been writing a paper on that. It will be published sometime (laughs) next year. Actually, Um, I mean, one we 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 do often see that statistic that Scotland has uh, that the UK has the lowest state pension in Western Europe, and that's true. We've got some of the lowest percentage income replacement rates um, among the state pension. that is largely because we have transferred the responsibility of looking at, of, of having a, a retirement income to the private sector. You know, our, our private pensions are, are, make up a much larger percentage of retirement income than, than many other countries across Europe, and that leads to problems. With one, you know, every time you you're paying into your pension or you're transferring your pension around looking for a better deal, you're paying fees, and that money is leaving and going into the financial sector's profits. But there's also instability, uh, whether it's through a, a company pension you know, disappearing when the company uh, goes bankrupt. We're seeing headlines about that today, um, as we have just about every week, or you know, just again. the the, the financial sector finding ways of taking your money Um, or when the markets collapse you see your savings disappear again and if that happens shortly before you retire you have no way of building that that back up again before you before you need it so i think we do we should maybe try and shift that balance away uh, back to a strong state pension uh, and a more marginal private sector
5: yeah well that's another example of you know why you want your your money your currency is a tool because you can make that decision. You you elect your government, and you say we want better pensions, and uh, the government has to create that uh, pension from the currency that it can create. Um, and that's you know the, the 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 big thing that people come back to me when I'm talking to this uh, talking about this is so what are the constraints? What's the constraints on issuing currency? Well, the constraint is is um, inflation. So, but we have, we have this really low pension here in, in Scotland, in the UK. And, um, you know, we have elderly people dying in, of cold in their houses. And in Scotland, you know, that's particularly uh, pernicious, seeing as how we have so, such a glut of energy in Scotland. So, um, yeah, we, we can choose to, to pay a better pension, a better state pension, once we're independent and we have our own currency.
0: Tim Rideout.
3: Yeah, well, absolutely, and uh, I mean to be a little bit dismal about it, uh, the the life expectancy of people in Scotland is actually, is rather shorter than it is in England for, on average. Um, so I looked at I looked looked at some figures. So uh, you know, a man in Easterhouse has a life expectancy of seventy two, whereas a man in Kensington has a life expectancy of ninety one. Uh, so uh, the the cost of paying state pensions in Scotland is, on average, rather less than it is in England over the lifetime of the pensioner, and it's quite likely that there's a transfer of funds going on by which national insurance paid in Scotland, and Malcolm Reeves is going to hit me on the head, but uh, uh, is actually uh, going off to um, uh, fund pension payments in England uh, instead. So I think if we're collecting the National Insurance and Income Tax and uh, so forth and we're paying the state pension out of the Scottish Government's budget, uh, we could probably increase the pension without actually uh, requiring any additional funding to do that.
0: And now Richard
4: Murphy. How do we deal with this in Scotland? We have to rethink the whole basis on which Scotland is going to do pensions. And I apologise if the picture looks odd. I'm having lots of internet uh, problems. The issue here is that in the UK as a whole, we spend well over £100 billion a year on state pensions, but we actually spend £55 billion pounds a year subsidising the pension contributions of people who are still in work. The vast majority of that goes to those who are already wealthy, of course, because by and large, you've got to be wealthy to actually be in an occupational pension scheme, except in civil servants, I accept. But the vast majority of that goes to those who are already well off. We subsidise the savings of the wealthy really heavily inside the UK taxes to the present, which very few people realise. Well, What we have to do is stop that stupid subsidy to those who are already well off and make a commitment to make sure that everybody has security in old age. So the first thing to do is change the tax system. The second thing to do is change the rules with regard to how pension funds work. To make sure that, in fact, they don't speculate um, for all the long term, which is what they do now. They buy shares, which are effectively Ponzi schemes, buy to sell schemes, which literally cannot pay a return in the environment we now live in, where sustainability is critical. And they stop speculating in land as well and instead create long term new employment because pensions are actually an intergenerational contract. It is that we will create something. Of value for the next generation to use so that they can give up some of their income when we're old so that they can afford to look after us. That is what a pension contract really is in macroeconomic terms. So we have to actually make sure that pension savings go into creating real long term value in Scotland. That's why I believe they should be linked to the existence of a Scottish National Investment Bank. This way you actually provide real long term economic security for the people of Scotland by generating wealth in Scotland. For the younger people of Scotland to enjoy so that they can look after the older people of Scotland in the future. Now, this is a fundamental rethinking of that intergenerational contract to provide people with the security they need. In the short term, we're dependent upon the exchange rate with regard to existing contracts. I accept that. but In the longer term, Scotland can commit to paying a much higher pension if only it thinks that it has to invest to pay. that future for everyone who lives there, and boy will people in Scotland be better off if that policy is adopted than they are in England right now, where frankly pensions are being, well um, to use a phrase that Boris Johnson might recognise, staffed against the wall of the City of London. Um, What should the pension age be in Scotland
1: and an independent Scotland?
2: Um, Right, I'm going to be a bit controversial. How about we stop thinking about uh, retirement age? and instead think about a universal basic income that allows people to retire when they want to and when they need to. I I think that's a great idea I think pension age
4: is a ridiculous concept I want to retire when I'm 83 at the earliest um, because I just love what I do and I don't you know that's all I want to do but I know people who need to retire in their 50s because they can't work there is no opportunity and everything else. So we have to have a system that is flexible enough to make sure that we care for people in the communities where they live and craig's right on this a ubi is part of that universal basis
3: i'd agree with craig that uh uh, some some people uh you know they're they're young when they're 80 and other people are old when they're 60. so uh, we need something that's a bit flexible uh, uh, about you know you can choose when you want to retire and take your pension
5: yeah, I think um, the, the same as Richard as well. You know, I don't see myself retiring at 65. Um, you know, I think I'll probably keep working probably until I die. I think um, John Weeks, another economist, he literally was writing a paper in his bed while he was dying. Um, so if you do things that you love, you're always going to be working at them. So, But, you know, obviously, if you're a fireman um, or if you're a nurse, you cannot be expected to do that kind of physical labour um, until you know when you, you get older so that's you know yeah there, there has to be flexibility it has to be a lot more intelligent than it currently is.
1: Okay and the final um, question on pensions um, who would be
2: responsible for um, pension, state pension in Independent Scotland? You know what happens in that transition period across independence and my position is that for UK citizens who have built up a UK entitlement using the UK national insurance, I mean, that that commitment will continue, wh- you know, whether or not you know, whether or not they live in the UK when they retire, unless there is a deal to the contrary, which is always always to be said. And maybe there will be a political settlement like as Tim said earlier, whereby uh, the Scottish government takes on some sort of liability for pensioners in Scotland post independence, and uh, maybe that will involve some sort of compensatory. Yeah, payment from U- the the UK to the Scottish government to that liability, some sort of equivalent payment. Um, but without that, then I have paid national insurance. I am I have built up an entitlement, um, you know, for some sort of UK pension, whether I retire and live in Edinburgh, London, or. New York you know I will get that I, I, I am I am due that entitlement so yes there will be a lot of politics around that point I can probably already hear people screaming at me on social media on, on both sides of <laughs> this but that's the way it is unless there is a deal to the contrary. Yeah I think so but I think uh, in terms of the
3: practicalities uh, there will be some sort of deal the Scottish government will take over the state pension and uh, you will know, we'll freeze it so you know. Uh, people in Scotland on the, you know the first day of independence with a, uh, a UK state pension you know, the liability transferred to the Scottish government um, anyone who moves to Scotland after that and they would they would have their parts uh, rest of UK pension they would start paying into a new Scottish pension um, so you know that and likewise you now if you if you move from Scotland to the rest of the UK after independence You'd, you'd keep your Scottish state pension and you'd have to start building up a new English uh, pension uh, from your employment there. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a, I think it's all perfectly soluble. Uh, the Island Man has this sort of arrangement where you, you have an Island Man pension. If you move to England, you can sort of transfer it. Uh, but they are separate. The Manx pension payment, incidentally, is considerably higher than the UK state pension.
1: What do the panelists think of the current slate of subject matter experts that the Scottish government rely on, and the lack of formal
5: vetting of those advisers? Um, so, yeah, I, I guess probably the first one that I can think of is the for the Scottish National Investment Bank. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm not particularly happy with those choices. But you know, I, I my politics is very uh, left of centre, I would say. So, it, I guess it depends on where your politics is as well, but. I mean, certainly another thing that concerns me is that is having the same person on multiple co- committees um, in the Scottish Parliament as well. So I don't think that's a very robust way of working or scientific way of working. Um, so I think, yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we have to have more voices being represented and more expert voices and from different um, points of view as well. So for example, I'm thinking very much of the point of view that you do not want to have A lot of orthodox thinking as far as economics is concerned within the Scottish Government, that politicians need to be listening
2: to different points of view. i lobbyist at a think tank, you know, it's, it's almost my contractual obligation to say the Scottish Government must do better no matter what they actually do. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to say that, that there have been significant improvements over the way that the Scottish Government has been taking on advice. They they have been broadening out a lot of their um, their advisory boards. I've, I've sat on a few uh, in the last few months and they've been coming up with some really quite, you know, radical ideas that I hope we'll see uh, filter into the the government. And of course, we have the, the, the citizens assemblies, which is a revolutionary way of advising government. This, the Scottish Citizens Assembly uh, is going to have its final meeting um, next week to, to firm up its final report. I've seen an early version of it and I'm really excited to see some of the things coming out of it. They've been, they've been calling for quite independently, quite calling for quite a lot of the things that Commonweal have been calling for. Thing, things like uh, a Scottish statistics agency and very radically for an upper chamber to the Scottish Parliament itself made up of citizens. So instead of a house of lords, a house of citizens to scrutinize legislation uh, coming out of the Scottish government. If we did that, that'd be a a, a, a fantastic thing for Scotland, a completely unique way of, of, of running a country. And that's, ordinary Scots have come up with this idea and pushed it. So, so if we can get more of that kind of thinking advising government, we can do amazing things wrote a white paper on taxation
4: in Scotland for Commonweal, and I'm now doing some updating work on that one of the things I made the point of was that you really do need to reflect a wide range of interests in any body which is trying to represent the people of Scotland and that's true of any consultation. It always worries me when I hear, for example, on tax that business people are and accountants are the people who know about tax when actually Um, The people who really know about tax are those who are actually paying it, and that would include pensioners and employees and charities and companies, small as well as large, etc. So any consultation has to have the criteria that the consultation process must hear all of those who are interested and not just the selected uh, voices of those who can, A, shout loudest and B, afford. To give up the time to be present on the consultation and that second point is really critical because if you can't afford to be there then you can't be consulted and a lot of these things require time commitment and so i think there should be a payment made by government by you know, the future independent government to ensure that voices can be heard by paying people to be represented on these bodies so that time lost and the costs of time lost, like childcare, are covered for those who partake. Because that way, you can hear all voices at the moment. You just hear those whose employers can afford to send them. And that's
1: wrong. Going back to talking about UBI. If we were to introduce UBI, should the tax threshold be reduced to 10k per year to generate more tax? caring?
5: Um Mm, Ubi. Um, that's that's Sorry, that's. I haven't really heard the whole of that question because it sends off alarm bells in my head. I'm not a big fan of Ubi. Um, and also, there are lots of um, there are lots of um, thoughts about how to implement it and how it would work. So, um, you know, my first and foremost, as far as taxation is concerned, you, your government doesn't rely on. Um, you paying your tax to fund things you know because it is spending first and then it taxes money back out of the economy to take money back out of the economy and um, so you know ubi i i have a lot of concerns about it and how it would be implemented um and yeah taxation the government doesn't rely on your taxes per se okay craig
2: um If we do go down that UBI route, there are different ways that you can use tax to sort of balance the accounts on the other side, um, whether you want to, whichever viewpoint you want to take on 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 what the purpose of that tax is. There are again, lots of different um, proposals for how a, a UBI would be introduced. We could probably have a whole panel discussion on that alone. A lot of the UBI schemes that I've seen that pay at a reasonable rate actually get rid of the personal allowance altogether. In effect, the UBI becomes your personal allowance. Um, So how, uh, uh, but if you want to go even higher than that, if you want a UBI that actually, you know, it provides say a living wage, then you have to start thinking about not just looking at income tax and other personal direct taxes as the balancer for that. You have to start looking at things like carbon taxes, environmental taxes, wealth taxes, land taxes, wherever the the money is going after the, the central bank injects it into the economy. This is where the, 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 especially the MMT people have to start looking at where you start pulling that tax back out. It's not always directly on people. You look at where it settles into those wealth collectors in society, and you start pulling it back out of them.
3: Tim, ride out. Well, I'm, I'm a bit like Karen. I think there's a there's a better scheme, which is a thing called the Jobs Guarantee, by which you you provide a you know a, a living wage job to anyone who wants one who can't get one uh, in the private sector or the public sector. Uh, that would be funded by the government, and so effectively that becomes a floor under the uh, under the jobs market in that. Uh, you know, if you can if you get the jobs guarantee scheme job for you know, 10 pound an hour then you don't really need a minimum wage because no no employer can pay less than 10 pound an hour because the person would just leave and they'd take the job guarantee position um it provides you know it would include training and one of the reasons for having the job guarantee scheme is that it's much easier to move on to another job if you're already in a job you know, as soon as you're unemployed for more than a few weeks People will start, you know, employers will start going, why is that, why are they unemployed? You know, is there something wrong with them? You know, did they, you know, were they sort of nicking the stationery or, you know, having a dispute with the boss or something like that? So, you know, And if you're unemployed for a year, then people, you know, employers think there must be really something wrong with the person. So this, this provides a stepping stone to get people into, you know, doing something constructive in the economy. And jobs are not just about money. I think it's a big part of people's social life Uh, You know, you meet friends and uh, potential partners and so forth through work. Um, It provides your sort of position in society. It means you're contributing. You know, people want to work and not just for the money. So I think, you know, rather than UBI, ensuring that everyone who can, you know, who does want to work can work uh, is probably a better way of targeting the funds uh, where they're actually needed rather than maybe giving them to people who don't actually need them because they've already got a well-paid job.
4: Briefly, I mean, I would take a compromise between those two positions, job guarantee and UBI, so I'm pure MMT here, though I'd note also, by the way, that nor is Stephanie Kelton who wrote the book The Deficit Myth. Um, What am I really meaning is that we have an appalling benefit system at present. I mean, universal credit is dire, unfair, penal, designed to be penal, built in bullying, you know, God's sake, one of the things we should be talking about is not just the Scottish tax system, but how we have a decent Scottish benefit system. And some form of UBI an entitlement for those who can't work is critical to that. I have modelled a UBI system which does pay a living wage. It does require a radical rethinking of a lot of taxation. And that does mean, yes, Craig, I agree with you, not just income tax, because it simply would not be possible to do this through an income tax alone. It isn't because the changes would be too great if you were going to pay a living wage of something like 16 plus thousand a year as a basic level for everybody. So therefore, it does require rethinking taxes that cannot be done overnight. Uh, So if it can't be done overnight, we have to make steps from one to the other. First of all, let's get the benefit system right. Let's, as Tim says, put in a job guarantee. But that requires there to be an independent currency through a Scottish Reserve Bank funding a Scottish national. National Investment Bank, which then also links into the idea that that is the basis on which we build the prosperity, on which to pay long-term pensions as well, because that is going to invest in the future. And if we provide jobs now and skills now, then that provides the support for the pensioners to come. All of these things have to be treated as a whole. Critically, you can't deal with one in isolation. What we need are people who can... Think about Scotland as a country, not as little bits of silos here and silos there and issue there, but actually can see it as one big picture, as one big journey to be made, all joining together in the overall destiny of a country as a whole. And that's the answer to this whole question, I believe. So it isn't a job guarantee. It isn't a UBI, It's a bit of both, but it's a bit of a change, more than a bit of a change to universal credit. It's more than the change to tax. It's rethinking from the beginning onwards, and a Scottish Central Reserve Bank is part of that process. I guarantee you.
1: Thank you. Um, John Gordon has made a, a comment here that any future Scottish government must not have any unelected representatives. No matter how many houses of government there are, those who govern must be elected by the people. Um, and I think that's the sentiment they probably most uh, agree with. Well, I'm afraid, guys, that's us um, kind of run out of time, so I would really like to thank you for your input this morning. Um, it's been fantastic, and I'm sure, certainly from the messages and, and the comments, everybody's um, enjoyed what you've been saying. Even if they don't agree with everything you say, um, it's good to have that debate.
0: You've been listening to Indy Live Radio, Yes Group Spotlight programme uh, which this week featured the Scottish Currency Group and a debate that they organised on how to go about designing a Scottish Reserve Bank. Uh, the team at India Live Radio would just like to say that we really appreciate Scottish Currency Group for having agreed to let us share their audio. Thank you.